Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. For this monthly Market Insights, Phil Atreid, Head of Investment Consulting, talks to Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, about market developments in February and what to expect from the month ahead. Hello and welcome to the March episode of Monthly Market Insights. I'm Phil Atreid, Barclays Head of Investment Consulting, and I'm joined by Will Hobbs, our Chief Investment Officer. We'll take a quick look back over the past month and also cover some of our thoughts on what to expect in the coming month of March. So, Will, when we look back over this last month, some of the themes, I suppose, have been a bit similar to last month, actually. Bitcoin's still giving its disciples a pretty wild ride and the so-called reflation trade continues to grip investors as well. We've seen commodity markets outside of precious metals continuing with a pretty barnstorming start to the year actually will and you know bond markets have started to struggle while stock markets continue to do pretty pretty okay actually by all accounts. I guess the first thing for us to discuss is what's actually been driving all of that. We've seen some startling moves in in the bond markets as we mentioned in, in recent weeks so maybe start with that. It's another busy month month I think that's um, that much is pretty clear. And there's all sorts of things, as usual, that go into this. But there's a couple of things that really stand out, I think. One is the the story with infection rates globally. So you have found in the last month or so in particular that infection rates around the world are dropping you know, precipitously, which is obviously very welcome. They're dropping so fast that it's not really well explained by the progress of the vaccination campaigns or indeed kind of estimations of pre-existing immunity. But what is kind of confusing scientists is being very welcomed by, you know, those looking at the economic outlook and trying to predict, uh, you know, how well the economy is going to do in the next 12 months, you know, slightly sort of sooner back to normal kind of idea. The other thing which is notable is the kind of expectations with regards to sort of government stimulus and government support uh, around the world, and particularly the US, that's obviously the most relevance for, you know, the world's economy and stock markets, given the size and relevance of uh, of the US economy. But there you are seeing expectations with regards to this incoming sort of stimulus package evolve a little bit. Um, and also some expectations are kind of building up a little bit about the infrastructure package that may be in its slipstream. Now, you know, that, that point about government support, you know, you and I have talked about a lot on this, uh, on this medium and all, all the other stuff, all the words on word on the streets, everywhere that we've done. It, it's that's a really sort of distinguishing factor in this kind of crisis response relative to those of yesteryear is the kind of sheer muscularity of government, res- you know, responses around the world. Uh, and that continues, you know, you're seeing that in the budget in the UK this week. Um, but in the US, that's the one that people are really looking at um, at the moment. And we'll see more in the next couple of weeks. Quite. And so, I mean, with regard to, in particular to the bond markets, what you're saying is really it, it's those markets and broader markets and assets pricing in new information around that pace of recovery that we've talked about before. As you say, we'll, we'll come on to the UK budget shortly, but the commodity piece is particularly interesting because, I mean, we're a house obviously added to commodities within our strategic, our long-term asset allocation in portfolios earlier on this year but probably for slightly different reasons. Is that right? Very different reasons, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this looks like astonishing prescience to shift a load of um, exposure into the best performing asset class by a mile so far this year. But as you rightly point out, that's the strategic asset allocation. That's very much an activity where we look to 
reshape the portfolios for the long term. And so there you're not looking at, you know, you totally ignore stuff that might drive asset classes in the next six months, say, and you're really focusing on, you know, the incentives, the available incentives and the credibility of uh, incentives for long-term ownership in things like stocks, bonds, uh, and diversified commodities uh, and how they interact. And that really informs, you know, how you allocate. And as, as, you know, as it happens, the process and team and models sort of allocated a lot more to commodities, which is, you know, bit of luck, never, never goes amiss in investing. But tactically, there is quite an interesting story with commodities at the moment and sort of, you know, looking at the commodity price surge. You know, there's a couple of things, again, that stick out. You know, one, um, you know, just as we were just talking about, you know, the commodity markets are telling us that the global economy is in a better shape than was only recently feared. So the demand story for a lot of these commodities is firmer than some had feared. Uh, The second point is that from the perspective of supply, and obviously this is another important driver with regards to, uh, you know, commodity, commodity prices, that there are a number of areas where you're getting bottlenecks or, uh, you know, the buildup of disincentives to invest in actual supply. And you're seeing the results here or, you know, the activities of cartels, particularly oil, you know, that that's been very important. So those things are creating quite helpful, you know, supply backdrop. Now, some are also pointing out, which I think is an interesting point in a way that if you look at this recession, it's really a shock to services, not necessarily goods. And actually you found that some consumption has been shifted uh, as a result of the kind of restrictions on movement and changed risk appetite, you found that a lot of consumption has been shifted away from services and into goods, which is also seen quite positive for commodities. The other thing, which I think is interesting, maybe only to people in financial markets, but it's the shape of the futures curve, which is, again, it's quite a nerdy, you know, nerdy pointness, I guess, and one really that only kind of certain types of investors will will go for. But but the futures curve tells you sort of, you know, basically is currently in backwardation in a lot of commodities. And what that means is that the price curve is downward sloping. So if you buy a futures, you know, an oil future, as you roll up to the spot price, as the future comes nearer, um, you're actually dragged upwards to the spot price, price, which gives you a positive yield. uh, And that is something that's also being very attractive in, in this moment for for investors. So there's a number of things going on. It's a very complicated story. It's not the same for each commodity, and it's not the reason why we're strategically asset allo- you know allocating to it. But uh, it's interesting all the same. Quite and a, a lot of those factors, though, I think, are, are maybe feeding some investor concerns around whether or not we're actually letting in some of this sort of reflation. We're letting that inflation genie out of the bottle. What what are yours and the team's thoughts around inflation? Yes, I mean, it's the perennial question. I mean, there, there may be something in that. And I think there's a couple of things going on with this kind of inflation story. I mean, we referred to that stimulus package. That's got people, some people concerned. Essentially, you know, it's a complex economic argument, this again, but there are some economists arguing that the st- size of the stimulus is bigger than the size of the hole in the economy. It's a dreadful oversimplification, but hopefully it gives you some sort of idea. So you're overfilling. And therefore, if you're getting the economy to go faster than it's meant to be going, you create that kind of, you know, those inflationary problems that uh, that people have long feared. Now, they've not been around for some time, those, uh, you know, problematic inflation. So that would be a new problem to have, in a sense, for many, uh, many investors. The point I'd make on that, or we'd make on that, is that a lot of this stimulus package in the US, some of it will you know, taper, some of it is designed to taper as the economy recovers. So there's elements of an unemployment support, for instance, uh, and some of it's just one off, which is kind of less likely to really create an inflationary problem. So the example is the, you know, the $1,400 
tax rebates, for instance. And also, you know, you could argue that the hole punched by this pandemic is conceivably larger than larger than currently estimated. The other inflationary arguments, I think, are sort of, you know, we'll, we'll find out a bit more. But there's some who are arguing that the new world is going to see increased production costs. And part of this is about you know, people reorganizing their supply chains for resilience rather than low, lowest cost. And so that that could create extra cost. To be honest, I mean, I, for here, I think there's an interesting counter argument to make, which is actually supply chains, you know, function pretty well at this crisis. I mean, I think we didn't find food supply interrupted too, too readily. I mean, there was a moment, wasn't there, but it didn't didn't really get too bad. And, you know, any kind of PPE problems were more about stockpiling issues rather than supply chain issues. So, and I'm not sure about the extent of supply chain reorganization we're seeing just yet. So, you know, this is a wait and see. And, and remember, like, keep a bit of humility in mind with, with inflation. You know, we're terrible at forecasting. That's not just Barclays, I'm afraid. It's everybody. Uh, that's because the relationship between growth and inflation is always been an uneven one, always prone to defying textbooks, academics and central bankers alike. So keep an open mind. Quiet, as always. And I mean, just touching back on on those sort of bond yields and the movements we've seen, though, you know, the the moves, such movements as we have seen in recent weeks, they can largely be absorbed and have been absorbed largely by markets. But what does the investing world look like to you and the team? And if we continue to see those yields rising to more normal levels. What does that mean for stocks and the equity market that has obviously you know, done very well in, in recent months? What does it mean for the likes of Bitcoin as well? Does that bubble pop? Yeah, glad you're calling it a bubble. You can now get all the online abuse that has been directed from me. <laughs> Listen uh, to you for far too long. <laughs> yeah, totally. I put those words, planted them. So no, I mean, I think the point here is that, you know, with, with stocks specifically, the relationship between interest rates and stocks is is a complicated one. It's not, you know, that there's a lot of kind of facile analysis or commentary that goes on that, you know, interest rates up, stock valuations down. That's not necessarily the case. It depends on the level they're coming from, going to the pace at which interest rates are rising, the things that are, you know, if the forces that are driving interest rates higher are the same forces that could conceivably improve your corporate profits outlook, then there's an offsetting impact too. So this is a very complicated story. And I think the point from me at the moment would be that, or the point from us, the team, would be that um, interest rates are coming from a very low level. They are currently not at worrying levels from a kind of, you know, from a valuation, equity valuation perspective. What I can imagine and there's not sort of, you know, empirical support. It's a bit of a bit scratchy here, to be honest. But I, I can, you know, we could, I could imagine a world where, you know, higher interest rates would certainly force a different sector leadership story in the, in, in the market that you could, you know, based on, you know, a change in, you know, how future cash flows or shape of future cash flows is valued in a higher interest rate environment, that could certainly change the types of sectors and stocks that, um, you know, that are on the leaderboard on a regular basis. So I think that's an invitation to diversify beyond those recent winners, which we always bang on about, as you know. With regards to Bitcoin, I mean, you know, we've had this debate on here before, which, which is really about, you know, if interest rates on your safest possible, you know, assets, government bonds generally, you know, lending to very big liquid governments tends to be a pretty safe activity, not you know, risk-free as they say, but it's pretty safe. So if you are suddenly getting a positive yield after inflation from those types of assets, then the reasons to own things like gold, which doesn't throw off a coupon, or Bitcoin, which doesn't too, they just get a bit less, I think. And that, 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 that could create a slightly more tricky environment for those types of assets, I guess. 
Great. And with the context of all that we've just discussed, it'd be good to know what the investment teams have been up to. The asset allocation team, you know, last time we spoke was mostly in watch and uh, watch and wait mode. But I did see one new trade coming through over the course of the last month. Maybe a few comments on that. Yeah, sure. So, so that's more of a it's a relative value trade. So they've gone, they've added to developed equities, funding that addition from exposure to high yields, so junk credit, sometimes called or used to be called uh, before the rebranding. And and the story here is really without getting too wonky about it, too nerdy about it. it, it the, the team see a slightly better range of possibilities for stocks uh, versus high yield at current level. And so they're exploiting that by exchanging a bit of one for a bit of the other. So yeah, it's it's just one of those little sort of tweaks of the portfolio that hopes to add value over time. Like I say, with these kind of things, you're looking more to sort of, you know, get more than 50% right and therefore add performance on, you know, more often than not. That's the, that's the trick. It's a, it's a probabilities game quite a lot of the time. Quite, and that powering down of high yield exposure, something we've seen them do before when we've seen valuations sort of look a little bit stretched in that space, obviously this time continuing to see value, as you say, in the uh, in the equity market in the more developed world. So one final point around the budget this week, I think probably the point of most interest and we've discussed internally is that of the rising corporation taxation. What are your initial thoughts on, on that move and the wider implications for investors, uh, possibly even globally? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, you know, there was lots of interesting stuff in the budget, wasn't there? But I mean, I think from an investment perspective, I think you're right, was the corporate tax rise that was there was probably most of most interest to, to, to us in a way as investors. There are a few points to make. I mean, I think one, you know, that, that was made widely beforehand, which is that the UK has room to raise tax rates on corporation or corporate tax, uh, corporate profits without kind of offsetting, you know, or, or without, whilst maintaining a what would see a competitive tax rate within the kind of OECD framework. You know, the other thing to point out there, I do think is that, you know, the, the, the story about kind of, you know, competitive tax rates and making sure that, you know, you retain that competitive edge. It's not just about the level of tax, I don't think, you know, it's about providing you know, it's about having workforces available. It's about having the right legislation, the legal framework, the right institutional context, all those kind of things. It's a, it's a much more complicated debate, I think, sometimes than is boiled down to uh, in, in, in some areas. The other point, though, I think, which is interesting, broader about a sort of debate going on internationally about corporate taxation, uh, which is really the idea that this has long been kind of mooted about the idea that, you know, it's probably preferable in the modern era to try and tax company revenues or company activity rather than where that company chooses to put its head office. And that, in a sense, is kind of, you know, it's a complicated story. There's lots of sort of entrenched interests and so on. So it's been a very thorny issue to try and get consensus on. But it does seem like there's a bit more consensus sort of forming on this story. So that's something to watch in the, in the months and years ahead, because in a way, you know, the the whole punched in public finances by this crisis is forcing a kind of new momentum uh, into this debate about how to tax corporations and particularly multinational corporations. You know, it's seen as an unfair advantage relative to, you know, you could have your local plumber suffering a higher tax rate than multinational corporation, which doesn't seem quite fair to most people. 
Great. Thank you very much, Will. Insightful as ever. Thank you also to our viewers and our listeners. If you would like to stay in touch with our thoughts over the course of the next month, please do seek out our weekly podcast, Word on the Street, where we'll share more of our latest views on on markets and the various goings on. Otherwise, we look forward to being back with you next month. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation. All tax rules can change in future and their effects depend on your individual circumstances, which can also change. We don't offer personal tax advice. You should obtain this independently if you are unsure. Investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance.